Welcome back to The BOMA, a podcast from the International Livestock Research Institute looking at how sustainable livestock is building better lives in the global south. I'm Annabelle Slater, and today we're talking about the drought that is devastating the Horn of Africa, where 17 million people are going hungry. Many people in the Horn of Africa rely on livestock for their livelihoods, and people and animals are suffering. We'll look at the issue with experts from the Jamil Observatory in Nairobi, Kenya, which was established last year to improve the way governments and NGOs respond to droughts. Here's Guyo Roba, head of the observatory, talking about a comment made by a Kenyan pastoralist at a community meeting. An elder said uh, he asked this question because um, there's a lot of activity. And, and so many cars and people coming when the you know drought is at the emergency stage, and uh, and he said, you guys are coming when we have really suffered, when they have lost half of our herd, and also when the vultures are descending from the sky. And he said, since you guys are coming at the same time when the vultures are descending, then it's very hard to distinguish us from the vultures. And he said, if you want them to respect our, you know, our engagement, our partnership, we should come two to three months before the vultures. Then they will also know these are the people who are here to help us, not the lake vultures who are coming to you know, feast on the dead animals. How can we beat the vultures? Today's drought early warning systems are more accurate than ever before. For example, there were already signs of poor rain in southern Somalia in March 2020 and the Famine Early Warning Systems Network, better known as FuseNet, sounded the alarm. By August 2020, FuseNet predicted that the next two rainy seasons would be poor. Now, in November 2022, four consecutive rainy seasons have failed, with the possibility of a fifth on the way. That's why the Horn of Africa is suffering this severe drought and famine. So, if the early warning system did its job, warning about poor rainy seasons, why does aid still come with the vultures? First, we turn to Stephen Matizo, a Save the Children's Food Security and Livelihoods Advisor for the East African region, to understand the current drought and its impact on the region's people. The current drought has started in 2020, and the water we have seen is a departure from what we know about the drought within uh, the Horn of Africa. Historically, what we know is that after every Two to five years we have a major drought event but that is not what we have seen in the last two to three years that we have seen drought taking almost two years now where people are suffering so the main uh, driver for this uh, ongoing drought is uh, climate change drought is catastrophic because it has many consequences drought makes it harder for people to care for livestock and produce crops this not only makes food scarce, but also raises the price of food and markets, putting whole communities at risk of hunger and loss of livelihoods. The situation also exacerbates local tensions. And the other major driver, of course, uh, apart from the climatic driver, is conflict that we have seen in some of the countries in the region are undergoing, to some extent, some conflict activities. We have Tigray in Ethiopia. You know what is happening in Sudan. You know, Somalia again uh, protracted conflict, which again uh, wasn't this uh, climate-induced uh, drought, but also some of the things that we have also seen uh, wasn't the drought uh, within the region is uh, all issue of economic hardship. 
like a major one is around the inflation. We have seen in Sudan that the inflation, especially for food, has been a major issue for the last two to three years now. Uh, the same case with uh, South Sudan, where inflation has certainly been a major, major uh, issue since 2017, that uh, we have seen uh, food prices going up and uh, people are unable to access food, even when we have food in the market. The consequences of drought, hunger and conflict ultimately affect millions of people. So what we have seen in most of the countries uh, is that um, the cereal production for major staples like maize, it just be around 50% of the long-term average, meaning that they are producing almost 50% of what they should be producing in a typical or normal year. And uh, what this has translated into is that um, we have high populations that are facing what we call acute food insecurity. And for example, in Kenya, we are talking about 4.3 million Kenyans who are classified as being under crisis, either crisis and above, meaning that they are under crisis, emergency, or even higher than that. In Somalia, we are talking about 4.2 million people. In Ethiopia, the numbers are even higher, 8.5 million people who are facing acute food insecurity. Guyo agrees. The effects of drought are truly multidimensional. Beyond the food insecurity it causes, the economy is also affected, especially for people who rely on livestock as their source of savings, as well as for nutrition. Drought affects the economy, as I said, I think, because especially for the nature-based uh, production systems, like, you know, rain, food, agriculture, livestock production systems, drought has a multiple socioeconomic effect. Economically, I think because of the food scarcity, the food prices rises, the supply question is actually, you know, uh, comes in, the supply is broken. And at the same time, I think, um, especially uh, because people's purchasing power goes down. If they largely depend on livestock, they have to sell livestock to get other products that they consume. So if your livestock body condition is not very good, it will fetch less prices. And it means that I think you can't cater for your household needs. So that has a direct economic implication. But then there's also the livelihood implication. Basically, if you are depending on livestock that gives you milk uh, and other products, then and these animals' body conditions are not good, then uh, basically it means that the household cannot sustain itself. There's clearly a lot to do to help people weather the drought, with options in each of the areas that Guyo mentioned. So what's the problem? Why isn't aid reaching the people who need it? Guyo says that even if early warnings and recommendations are made, there isn't enough timely support and funding for action from the international community. I think uh, a good example in Kenya, you know, we have the drought bulletin that comes out every month. It's done religiously by NDMA with very good recommendation of the project at every phase of the drought. You know, in January, they say, you know, do strategic borehold, manage animal diseases and etc. The National Drought Management Authority, or NDMA, is the governing body in Kenya responsible for coordination over all matters related to drought risk management. It works to mitigate drought emergencies, and its early warning system actively monitors conditions to produce a monthly bulletin of recommendations. Unfortunately, all this recommendation is not matched by any sort of you know, funding implementation structure. So by third month, from the first month, you find that 
the bulletin gives different recommendations. So as you approach the emergency stage, if you have done few things, you would have actually built the resilience of the community. Uh, if you do a borehole that they say you do in January, in February, then to enable mobility, access to certain pasture areas, it will actually have implication on the on the on on, um, on the resilience of the communities to drought. And maybe another issue is that the systems aren't actually preparing for drought. They're responding to problems that are already happening or working to mediate the resulting effects. Much like vultures come after death, so too is drought response. We need to think about, well, why is this system not quite working in that way? And I think some of the problems are that it's a reactive system. Gary Watmer is a senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. He is also an associate at the Jamil Observatory, working on enhancing local level data through high spatial resolution satellite imaging. When it says early warning, it is an early warning, but the droughts have already started when we're looking at these. And it's giving us enough information to say, right, this is going to get worse, so we need to do something now. But it's still reacting. You know, some of the systems that have been put in place since the previous drought in 2010, 2011, they are the safety nets being placed by the government. But that's a reactive approach. It's not proactive. If you've got a safety net under a ladder, it's to stop you hitting the ground. And that's you kind of want to avoid that in the first place. You don't really want to be falling off a ladder and hitting and, and hitting a net before you hit the ground. You need some sort of proactive um, response to these issues. And these crises are only going to get worse. There's only going to be more of them over time. So we need to think about that sort of anticipatory approach, that anticipatory action. Um, which is, I think is that the effectiveness is, that's where I, I question the effectiveness so far, is that it's that longer term anticipatory action that we're lacking that we really need to think more about. I believe that every dollar spent on anticipatory action, making communities more resilient is going, in the long run, it's going to save money because you're not having to have humanitarian crisis management and you know, food parcels dropped out of aeroplanes, as we've, as you see on the news in the CNN and, and the BBC. Those are the sort of the things that people remember out, you know, that aren't involved in this type of work. That costs a lot of money and it's not sustainable. It's not helpful. We need to build that resilience first. Those who are worst affected by drought are also the least resilient, who end up suffering from the disconnect between early warning systems and responses. That disconnect goes beyond people not receiving aid in time. It also makes people mistrustful of the data they are being given. Well, I was in the field in, in Kenya and one of the farmers we was talking to had it was multiple, like half a dozen or so apps on his phone. And this one never works. This one didn't work. This one told me last year not to plant maize. So I didn't plant maize, whereas his other friends in the area continued to plant maize anyway, even though it looked like the rain wasn't going to be good enough. And the rains eventually came and they had a good harvest and he switched to grow something else. And therefore his trust in these systems and this data had suddenly um, dropped. He was no longer using that particular app. And it's that element that we need to think about how we communicate it better to show that this isn't guaranteed. And that's the issue, really. That's one of the key things about how do you how do you communicate that this isn't an exact science? Because it's really difficult to predict rainfall. It's very difficult to predict it into the medium to long terms that we're also wanting. It's quite difficult to do that. So the anticipatory action 
it may not be that we have to improve the predictions. It's more we improve how we communicate what is done and what it means and how people want to use that data. But to do that, we need that co-production approach where what do farmers look for? What do they want? How much trust have they got? And where can we build that trust further? And that, that's a, a big one that we're still getting our heads around at the Jamil Observatory as well to actually figure out what we're doing. Drought management has to become more proactive and better tailored to the communities it should help. In a space built on response rather than anticipation, how can we better build resilience and preparation for the next drought? The field is already crowded. Many institutions are working to better detect, monitor and respond to droughts. The problem is they are working in silos with little communication and crossover between them. That's where Guyot Rober sees the Jamil Observatory playing an important role. And I think the reason why the Jamil Observatory as an idea is more compelling is actually to bring the you know the science with the policy and i think it's a very unique proposition that we have in the observatory uh, is that i think uh, we will bring people who are so much embedded in the humanitarian space those who are you know so much rooted in the action space those who are so much rooted in their you know research space together and see how do we blend this thing the observatory has finished their first meeting of the community of practice, bringing together stakeholders to compile a list of challenge questions. And they've pinpointed three priority areas, data and financing for early action, and coordination between early warning and action. Of the three, coordination is the biggest challenge, as it involves building trust in data. How do we build trust within data? And also, of course, the, you know, how did you bring the, the long-term versus short-term interventions? Uh, short term means that it's an emergency and we will need to solve it. Long term means the development resilience conversation that happens. So these five ideas are currently what we are clustered together. And, and within this, we already got co-champions, institutions who want to be part of this idea. Although only a year old, the Jamil Observatory has already made headway. At the core of the observatory's mission is working with partners and bringing all possible stakeholders to the table. I think the stakeholders, of course, primarily government, I think from some of our work, uh, they will really stand to benefit. Uh, but then also, I think the donor community, because they also put a lot of money on these issues and uh, on the drought you know, situation. And I think if, if, we, if we get an, an opportunity to have a, you know, a roundtable conversation with them, it would be perfect. I think the third category of people, for us, I think is also the, you know, the pastoralist, because their people are missing from the table and through the association or through whatever structures they have, they have to find their footing. And we're looking at how do we bring also them into the community of practice. Currently, they're not there. So certainly, uh, they are also another actor. Private sector, I think, yeah, they're a bit uh, weak in this space. Uh, we already working with you know, some of the people are providing you know, insurance services, uh, livestock insurance in the advisory theme. But then certainly, I think we need to have... Uh, a strategy on how we can also bring them on board. As well as fostering dialogue and mutual understanding, the Jamil Observatory is also working to fill gaps in the data and make data easier for decision makers to use. One of Gary Watmo's monitoring projects is to find out what's going on on the ground. Because here's an example of a data gap. In Kenya, a census happens only every 10 years to track population trends. But with so many things going on during this time, it might not be clear what's driving any changes. So Gary uses remote satellite imagery to collect data more regularly over a region. 
sometimes as regularly as on a daily basis. One type of data collected is roofing types, because a change from thatched roofs to metal roofs can show a household has gained more income. Other indicators of income and general well-being are field size, crop growth and house size. So that research feeds into these drought monitoring detection systems whereby if you know there's a drought occurring or you've got projections of a drought happening, what we're being told as well by like the National Drought Monitoring Authority in Kenya is one of the things that's lacking is, a well, we know where the drought is, but there's quite a few regions. Where do we target first? Which communities do we target? And it's that socioeconomic element, the resilience of those communities that's lacking in some of this information. The data doesn't allow us to do that without doing very expensive household surveys, which we just we can't do them quickly enough and we can't process. Even if we could get people out into the field to collect these things, they take a lot of time to process and clean and then release. So it, it would cost so much money that we wouldn't be able to do anything else. So that's where my research kind of comes in into the Jamila Observatory is how do we start to try and plug those gaps and add extra information to these drought uh, detection systems to say you might want to think about doing something slightly different in this region. With 17 million people in the Horn of Africa facing hunger and a fifth failed rainy season on the way, that narrative of aid coming with the vultures needs to change and urgently. Accurate early warning systems and institutions like the Jamil Observatory make it possible to anticipate drought and prepare for it, rather than react to emergencies. Humanitarian aid will still be important, of course, but we can help build resilience in communities before aid becomes necessary. The Jamil Observatory is bringing together many different aspects of drought relief, encouraging different institutions to work with one another. Science, policy and humanitarian sectors all have something to contribute to drought responses and will be even more effective as they learn what each can offer the other and what each needs from the others. The observatory is also bringing on board the people who matter the most, the pastoralists and their livestock and the communities affected by drought, who often have their own insights into drought warnings and how to cope. Working together through the Jamil Observatory's projects in future could help to prevent drought from causing hunger, famine and death. Thanks for joining me on The BOMA. I'd love to hear your feedback on today's episode. Please reach out on Twitter at BOMA Podcast to let us know your thoughts. And if you enjoyed today's episode, leave a rating to help others find the show. Share this episode widely and subscribe to our series. See you next time on The BOMA.